Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Biblically Speaking, the podcast. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and as always, my co-host is with me, my brother in Christ, my friend and partner in crime, Brian Tiberius Bear Summoner Haynes. And boy, Brian, we have an episode for them today. If the last couple of weeks hadn't been controversial, today is almost certainly going to be one that resonates and generates some questions and maybe some arguments, because we are talking about the doctrine of original sin. Is it biblical? Is it part of the scripture? Is it something that Jesus taught or the Apostle Paul taught? And we're going to get into it all today, but uh, let's talk about why this is important. Uh, we were talking in the run-up to the show about how this is mainstream Christian denomination teaches some version of original sin or inherited sin or total depravity or sinful flesh or something that that sort of shifts the blame, at least in my mind, from man and his culpability and his sin to something that is more existential or external to him. So what are we talking about when we talk about original sin? Fantastic. And you said it. Um, this, this ought to be something that... Uh, uh, that that stirs some talk because every um, and I say every in a generic sense every every denomination gets this one wrong. Um, a couple of different levels though. The problem is it's not as though we're just talking about one thing. Right. Uh, one one aspect of this is the concept of sinful nature. Uh, is it the nature of a man to sin that it's not it's something within his nature that he cannot help that he's going to be drawn into sin. Uh, that it is simply a part of the way we exist, that we have a nature that pursues sin, that sinful nature. Okay. Original sin speaks to the idea that we also are born sinful because we have inherited the guilt of the sins of Adam. Uh, right. And there's a couple of different nuances to that theory, depending on what denomination you are. Well, I think there's even, uh, whether even you're Catholic some or, denominations that hold to the idea that you not only inherit the sins of Adam, you sort of inherit everybody's sins in your genealogy, right? right. So right. like I would be guilty right. of my father and my grandfather. I don't know if it's passed down through mother or father's lineage, but, or if there's even a distinction between that, but, but that's at least one of the flavors of that. Now you mentioned the third and that was, yeah. uh, uh, total, total depravity. depravity. Yeah. So that's, that's, that, unique that, that, to that's Calvinism. straight out of Calvinism, right? That's the T in the tulip theology of Calvinism. Total depravity says that you are so depraved that it is impossible for you to make a good decision, right? That if if God didn't through the Holy Spirit change your uh, ability to act, you would not be able to make a single good choice. So, do uh, want different nuances, but they all kind of say the same thing that that we are uh, sinners uh, from birth, and we have no uh, no way to overcome that, right? And that's not what the Bible says, is it? No, no, it's not. And to our audience, because I know a, a number of you come from, uh, or many of you come from different denominations. Many of you come from backgrounds backgrounds that aren't Christian. You're just curious, and I'm using that that term in a cultural sense, Christian. You're just curious about what the Bible says. We're going to get into some things today that we hope that you'll keep an open mind about. That we'll be able to talk through. You know, we're not going to attack anyone today. But we definitely want to be able to talk through these things with you in a way that that hopefully causes you to maybe take a second look if if this is something that you believe. So, Brian, let's start with with probably the probably the lightest of the three. The least consequential might be the idea of of uh, of having a sinful nature or sinful flesh. The second right. the second would be the idea of inheriting the sin of Adam, and the third would probably be total depravity. Did I remember that order correctly? Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's how we typically look at it. And of course, okay. when we talk about the idea of a sinful nature. Um, I always like to say, hey, if you you might be surprised to know that the the expression sinful nature is not found in your Bible, but if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, you might actually find that term is put into that that in some of the paraphrased Bibles. Uh, it's it's put into the text. Um, Actually, I believe I just forgot where it was. I believe it's Romans chapter eight when it speaks about uh, Jesus coming in the form of sinful flesh. And in the text there, uh, the NIV alters not that passage, but a subsequent passage that speaks about sinful flesh and calls it a sinful nature, a sinful nature. Um, and what's kind of um, difficult about that is that in the conversation Paul is trying to have in Romans chapter eight, he is trying to say that our flesh does have desire, 
that because it is not, if it is not controlled by the spirit, or if it's not controlled by the, Paul might use the term outer man and inner man too, uh, if it's not controlled by the inner man, it will sin because it desires things. Um, and maybe the best way to look at what Paul is saying is that it's like an animal. You know, uh, uh, I love beagles. You know, I got a beagle and beagles don't like to share. Beagles like to gobble up all the food right away. Beagles like to uh, take things and not let uh, others have them. Uh, and that's that's the flesh. And we are all of flesh. The, the human being is part of the natural order of things. And so uh, our uh, attitude is that, you know, in the flesh, our flesh wants things. I see you brought up some passages that brought that up even as Paul talks about these things mm -hmm. and talks about the idea that the mind of the flesh is on the things of the flesh. And that's a great point. Right. In the older NIV, Romans chapter 8 and verse 5 reads, those who live according to the sinful nature. So, uh, you know, that's again, right. the, whereas the text clearly says flesh, those translators thought sinful nature would be a better way to go at that. That's not what, but otherwise it's not in the Bible. Otherwise that term sinful nature is not in the Bible. Okay. So explain to me again, the idea of, of the sinful nature. Let, let's get into this a little bit and why it's problematic that, yeah. so we know it's not total depravity as in man cannot, unless God acts on him, choose anything righteous, but but what right. what is sinful nature or sinful flesh? As you well? know, sinful nature, uh, one of the things about sinful nature, if I wanted to debate Brian or Jared and say, I believe there is a sinful nature, the first thing I would say is, then why does everybody sin? Sure. Uh, that'd be a good question. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is because the flesh does desire things. And without the mind or without the spirit to control it, uh, we, the flesh will do things that are sinful. You know, it, it desires, yeah. uh, and you know, if it's not controlled, it we give into it, and it has that point. Um, but that's not necessarily to say that that is our nature, and that's the mm -hmm. important idea that we have to understand. That the Bible speaks a lot to the nature of man. Yeah. Fundamentally, the nature of man is like God. That's. That's the big problem with sinful nature. Mm -hmm. uh, Genesis chapter one, God said, let us make man uh, like us. You know, let us make man in our image, uh, God says. And and of course, God has this pluralistic nature of uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we too have a pluralistic nature of the flesh and spirit and soul uh, that we might kind of contrast. That could even be what God was saying when he said, making that image. But the greater point is we're made in the divine image. And that doesn't change. It's not as though... Uh, once Adam sinned, we cease to be made in the image of God because whenever God is giving the commandment not to murder mm -hmm. to the Israelites, he says you're not to murder because man is made in God's image. Man is still, in other words, made in God's image. So man today yeah. is in God's image. That's why uh, life is, we say life is sacred because of that being in the image of God. So so, so we can kind of see right away there's a problem. If, if yeah. I have sinful nature and I have divine nature, uh-oh. You know, those two things can't be reconciled. Well, you almost have to make the argument that there was a, a transformation in the garden from right. from the right. image of God to the image of something that is less than God, and that and that right. or less than God intended, and that sort of presents problems for the book of Hebrews, where yes. where man is sort of set above the angels. The angels are ministering spirits that that came on behalf of God to minister to man. And uh, at the end of Hebrews one, and and when Jesus is taking on the form of man in Hebrews two, to be tempted and to be tested and to take captive sin and death, and I'll I'll put that up on the screen a little bit later, but he does so with perfection. If the if sin is a part of the flesh, then and Jesus didn't succumb to sin, then we have to say that in some way Jesus was not fully like us. Correct. Right, right. He wasn't like us in all ways, which you, you're exactly right to point out. The Bible hinges our salvation on the idea that Jesus uh, was tempted in all ways as we are, that Jesus uh, was in our likeness. Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 8 says he's in, he's created with that sinful flesh, uh, hence he could be tempted. Um, that's the idea of the ability to, right. that Jesus might even be tempted, is that he had to be in that flesh. So you're, you're hitting the exact problems that this idea of a sinful nature creates, Jesus is the problem. Mm -hmm. um, because Jesus is supposed to be man and God, 100% uh, way man, 100% God. And to say that we have a sinful nature that imputes sin is to say Jesus has a sinful nature 
which is a huge problem. Well, and it also presents a problem, at least in my mind, when you look at somebody like uh, Abraham. The, I'm sorry, Moses. Well, Abraham or Moses, but the one I meant to say is Noah. <laughs> that, yeah. that when you look at, say, Genesis, uh, Genesis 6, and the description of Noah is given there, it says uh, in verse 8, after God's made this decision that he's going to blot out man whom he had created from the face of the land, from the uh, from man to animals to creeping things and birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. It says in, <clears throat> it says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're told then that Genesis is shifting the narrative to follow Noah, that these are the records of the generations of Noah. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah was perfectly sinless, but it does mean it does mean that Noah's flesh was not something that was constantly giving to sin. Now, this is going to be much more of a problem when we get to total depravity, and man can't possibly choose anything righteous unless God instigates the righteousness within him, because that's completely the opposite of what we see there in Genesis chapter 6. But when you stop and you think about that, and you do think about what we're told about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, and let me go ahead and pull that up now. It says in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by grace, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him... Uh, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And skipping over the, the quotation of the Old Testament there, it says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, and through death that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which uh, <clears throat> in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to those uh, to the aid of those who are tempted. Now this thought comes up again at the end of chapter four. Let me skip down there, beginning in verse twelve. Here Jesus is called the Word of God. It says, "For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eye of Him with whom we have to do." So we see the Word of God is a hymn there, and it's someone that we're completely open before. But look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. When you look at what that's saying there about Jesus, it's saying he had to partake in, in the same flesh that we partake in. If flesh is inherently sinful, if it has a sinful nature to it, and God put Jesus in a body where he could be tempted, but he wouldn't succumb to sin, even though all flesh must, by necessity, because of its nature, succumb to sin, then he is not the same as us. Yes, exactly right. Um, and uh, and, and that, that disables the whole plan of salvation. That's yeah. the great problem with this doctrine. Yeah, he can't be a high priest. Seems, He's judging us unfairly. Yes, he can't be yes, any of those yeah. things that the Hebrew writer says he must be. It completely right. pulls apart the plan of salvation. Yeah, and it seems like a simple solution to the the question of why do we all sin, but in fact it's a catastrophic choice. It, it just completely does terrible damage. And it fails to actually explain why man sinned in the first place because – uh, even the proponents of sinful nature will say, well, Adam wasn't created with a sinful nature, so why did Adam sin? Right. Uh, and why is it that we're told repeatedly that the nature of Adam's sin is the nature of all sin? That the choices Adam made uh, in, in the garden, it says, or particularly Eve, it says, Eve looked upon the, f the fruit. It was, you know, pleasant to the eyes, that desirable for food, desirable to make one wise. John says in 1 John chapter 2, hey, all that's of the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Same temptation, same exposure. Uh, Adam and Eve, 
even, as I said, even the proponent of sinful nature cannot bring themselves to say that Adam and Eve were created sinful because that, that would mean God made something sinful. Yeah. Um, but they but they then fail to explain why Adam and Eve sinned into the same accordance that we sin today. Uh, why that is the way it is. It, and so it, it, it actually fails even to accomplish the purpose that it was designed to accomplish as a, as a false doctrine. Well, and it really doesn't even explain the consequences of sin. We get right down to it because Paul points out in Romans 5 that, that there are those who die who, do not, who did not sin in the likeness of Adam. And mm-hmm. you know, that's probably talking about you know, children that die and things of that nature that don't, that don't experience sin. They haven't reached that age where, where the knowledge of sin that Paul talks about in Romans 7, the knowledge of, of the law became alive in him and sin took the opportunity. And we'll talk about that in another program, that, that does God hold you know, certain people unaccountable for their sins? I think that could be a good, a good discussion. Yeah. But Paul, I think, and and what you're doing here is you're bringing into it our second level, yeah. uh, Because what you're now talking about is the concept of original sin. Yeah. So before we get into that, though, I do want to point out something that that you mentioned, and I want to bring this out in Scripture that the Bible actually does tell us the the beginning of sin uh, for each of us. Not just not just Adam sinned in the garden, and that was the beginning of sin, but that we each have a personal beginning uh, to our sin, and that that's actually found strangely enough in the book that's most often used to argue original sin or total depravity or or uh, the, the sin nature, and that's in the book of Romans, and you find it in Romans chapter 1. And this is, this is something, this is the danger of, of proof-texting Bible verses, is that you forget that if you don't start reading in Romans 1 and continue reading all the way to the beginning of Romans 12, you really haven't captured Paul's thought in the book of Romans at all. That uh, Romans 12 sort of begins a new thought, but the whole first 12 chapters or 11 chapters of Romans are really one big thought. How did sin come into the world? Who does it affect? How did God alleviate sin? Why is it necessary that I conform to the image of Christ? But looking at what he says in Romans 1 verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So here's why God is angry. Here's why we would see his wrath in the past, that they were suppressing the truth because of unrighteousness, that they loved unrighteousness, so they suppressed the truth. And it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. Therefore... God gave them over in in lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So if you look at this, it says they, that they should have known something about God based on his create based on his creating them. And instead, they didn't honor God. They weren't thankful. They began to speculate about whether or not they could make gods and began to make gods for themselves. You know, this is something Isaiah points out. I think it's in Isaiah 44, if memory serves. Maybe it's 40, that the foolishness of the people that go and create an idol and they have to choose between two trees and one of them they use for the fire to cook their dinner and the other one they carve an idol out of and they have to chain it to a wall so it doesn't fall over. And to call that God is really foolish because you created it. And that's the foolishness of the heart. And he says that they want so much to be wise that they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of corruptible man, and then they get further away from God. Then it's birds and it's four-footed beasts and crawling crawling things. What we see is that there is there is a a desire to be to a desire to be seen as wise. There is ingratitude, there's a desire not to honor God. And and what they do is they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and that's the genesis of sin. That, that, that's where sin begins, is we don't want to honor God, we're not grateful for what God has done, and we're willing to knowingly exchange something true for a lie. So how does that impact our discussion 
of this sinful nature and whether or not sinful nature is inherited from Adam. We'll get into sin inherited from Adam in a second, but how does that change our discussion on what the origin of sin is? Yeah, it becomes one where uh, the origin of sin is something that begins with every one of us. Um, you know, it's funny you said, I know where sin comes from. He went to Romans 1. Uh, I was thinking of James chapter 1, where James says, you know, don't say you're tempted by God. He says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Here, Here is the story of sin of sin, you know, and where does sin come from? It comes from desire. Um, and, and again, going back to the garden, the lust of the flesh, what I, what I physically want, uh, the lust of the eyes, what I, you know, what I want to possess or I want to own and the pride of life where the ego is, uh, being fed and, and nourished that those are the things that always bring us to sin. Uh, some people right. would make the case that those are the only three vectors of sin into our life. And I think it's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Every, in some ways, every sin fits into all three of those categories. So, right. And, and important to know, by the way, that uh, when Jesus is tempted um, in his temptation in the flesh, uh, it's the lust of the flesh, uh, turn the stones to bread, the lust of the eyes, showing him the mm -hmm. realms of the world, uh, the pride of life descending from the temple. It's the same way. So when, when the Hebrew writer says in mm -hmm. the same way, he was tempted in all ways that we are, that's the all ways he's talking about. He's talking about those three avenues that temptation comes across. And again, if Jesus was not a partaker of the flesh yeah. of the same nature as we are, why then is his temptation identical to ours and identical to the very one that Adam and Eve were brought well, to? And, and, and this is, and I've got James one on the screen okay. again, if you want to take a look at that, that verse 14, each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own lust. Uh, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That The thing that I think makes me the angriest about these kinds of doctrines and, and frustrates me so much is it shifts the blame almost in a Yosemite Sam kind of way. The, you, you remember the cartoon where he went, the devil made me do it, I mean the rabbit made me do it? it it's kind of the same thing. I, I can't help it. I am who I am. There's nothing I can do about that. I mean... Right. This is the problem that we have with right. sin today. I can tell you, my if if I went and committed adultery tomorrow and I told my wife, you know what, I'm a red-blooded heterosexual male, there's nothing I can do about it, my hands were absolutely tied, man, I would wait. <laughs> I would not want to be in my shoes when that discussion was had. But what it really comes down to is it's shifting the blame away from us to God. And that's one of the things that we have to be – you have right, to stop right. and think about this, that if God made me this way, if God allowed my nature to shift because Adam sinned in the garden and forced me into this sin nature, then I am blaming God for who I am. Now, we would readily say that we don't accept that when it comes to the homosexual movement. You know, I, I don't believe in born this way. I believe people are, are to some degree uh, – coerced into that lifestyle, that this is no different, that you're saying, I was born this way, I can't help it. And that really does lead us into that second level where we're talking about inheriting sin. Now, let, let me turn it over to you for a second, let you talk right. a little bit about that, and I'll get some passages up on the screen here. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the concept of original sin kind of flows from this idea of sinful nature. Now, it's a little different because it speaks okay. a little more to the nature of the guilt of sin. Um, and one of the one of the founding fathers of sinful nature and original sin is a guy named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. In some ways, he's kind of the father of the Catholic Church because a lot of his reasoning becomes some of the core concepts right. of Catholicism and these characteristics. Uh, really, before him, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't something that was commonly accepted or understood, some of these characteristics, but he believed in the concepts of, of, of a sinful nature. He, he said he could see it in babies, which, you know, I think most people look at babies and don't see anything sinful. He did. He saw babies as, as utterly sinful. And he said that the idea then is that we're actually born with a guilt of sin upon us. Um, and his reasoning was, and, and so we said that the reasoning of a sinful nature is that if we're going to sin, it must be our nature. His reasoning of original sin was, if we're all going to die, 
then it must be the case we are all guilty of sin since what he saw in Romans mm-hmm. chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin or death. He saw physical death as the proof of that. So that even since babies die, they must be in some way guilty of sin. Who believes that? Well, right off the top, yeah. anybody who baptizes babies believes that. Uh, that's why they baptize babies is uh, for this idea of a of a, some kind of salvation by works without faith would be the uh, the way that they're expressing that. But the idea that you you know somehow need to wash off that original sin. But the idea is that we inherit uh, Adam's sins, and and a lot of that too is taken from some. Ter- terrible misunderstandings yeah. of some of the passages of scripture. Um, and you and I had talked about this even yeah. before the show out of Romans chapter five and a uh, misconstruction of that. And again, it's going to be easy for us to demonstrate that original mm-hmm. sin cannot be a biblical doctrine. It's not going to be difficult for us, but let's first of all, maybe take a look at why some people think it is. I think uh, 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 pausing there and looking at Romans five might be worth it for us to, to bring that up and say, why do people think this says something about original sin? Again, it's not a term found in the Bible. Like sinful nature, original sin is not mentioned in the Bible. It is a, it is a human right. construction. Well, let's read it. Therefore, Why? just as one man, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. This is Romans five and twelve, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, one of the things you have to be careful with with this passage is that Paul is going to say the same thing in several different ways, but he's going to be more emphatic about it almost every time that he says it. And so you sort of have to keep a theme in your head of what's going on here. And it really goes back to the end of what he said, or what he said at the end of Romans chapter 4, where... <clears throat> Let me pull it up here. And this is dealing with the with the justification by faith. It says for this reason it is by faith in order that it verse 16 that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promises will be guaranteed to all the descendants and not to those who are of the law and so this is what he's trying to do here is establish why everybody needs grace why why grace is offered to all men and not just not just to the Jews you got to remember that in Romans he's writing to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles and so getting back to chapter getting back to chapter 5 now where it says in verse 13 for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed where there is no law nevertheless death reigned from adam until moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of adam who is the type of him who was to come so let's look at this block of 3 verses here you got verses 12 13 and 14 what is Paul saying? We'll come back to the screen in just a second. What is Paul saying in those three verses? You know, it's very interesting uh, what Paul wants to say. And a couple of things that are worth talking about, mm-hmm. uh, even before we get too far into these passages, is to understand uh, one of the complicated things about Romans is yeah. sometimes one word had more than one meaning. So, for example, when Paul talks about law, sometimes he's talking about the law of Moses. Sometimes he's talking about the law of Christ. Sometimes he's talking about law in general. So there's three different uses of the word law in Romans that can confuse us. But the other thing that I think confuses Mm -hmm. some people is the use of the word death. Um, Not just with Paul's writings, but throughout the Bible. We go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam, the day you eat of that fruit from that tree, you will die. Then in Genesis chapter 3, God says, so that because man had partaking of the fruit. He says, so that man does not take of the fruit and live forever. He was put out of the garden. 900 and Mm -hmm. some odd years later, Adam died. So there's actually some people that think the Bible contradicted itself. God said, the day you eat of it, you die. And then 900 years later, Adam died after eating the fruit. But what we appreciate Mm -hmm. and understand is that death has two meanings. Uh, There is a death in the flesh that Mm -hmm. Jesus, for example, died in the flesh. And then there is the death of somebody before God. Uh, We might say it's a spiritual death or a soul death. And that concept of being dead in our sins is the concept of why it is we come to Christ. That's why when we're baptized, that's a type of resurrection because we go from being dead to being alive. Uh, We are born again, so to speak. 
So it's important to understand that death has more than one meaning, and that uh, when Paul is speaking here in this passage, first and foremost, we need to appreciate that mm-hmm. we want to understand which death we're talking about. Now, Paul has said, and you made a, you made an excellent point. You made a point that was so good, I shared it with somebody else the other day, that really the chapters and verses in Romans don't help us as much because we need to take Romans mm-hmm. chapter 1 through 11 as one thought. Yeah. And that's great because in Romans chapter 3, Paul has made a great case to say that the misunderstanding was that the Jews, because they had law, uh, could be forgiven easier than the Gentile. But he wants them to understand that if there's sin, there's law. So the Gentiles had law and the Jews had law. And that whenever there's a transgression of law, that's where sin is. And of course, that's verse 13. Paul says there was death. There was sin and death uh, between Adam and Moses. Therefore, there was law. Um, but the the transgression was different. We might even point out the idea that sins were different between Adam. Uh, after right. Adam, nobody was told not to eat of the tree, um, but instead they were, you know, told not to murder their brother, not to commit adultery, not to, you know, various things that we're more familiar with. Um, so in that right. sense, we have that idea as well. But the whole point is that where there was sin, death abounded. Death was there. And and of course, the law offers no hope for sin. It doesn't offer in itself and of itself a way to well, escape. And, and we're going to see this a little more clearly sin. in just a moment. But one of the things that I see, and this is something that, that you and I have talked about many times before, is that sometimes we play fast and loose with the wording if we're not careful. I'm going to put this back on the screen. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. No, no, nobody doubts that it was through Adam and Eve that sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It doesn't say all inherited sin. That, that That's you know a past tense uh, form of the verb that's being used there. But it means to commit an offense. So all committed offense. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So if people were being judged by sin, there was some sort of law in the world, even though it wasn't the law that the Jews subscribed to as the law of Moses. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So we're gonna, what he's setting up here is the parallel between Jesus and Adam and why it is that Jesus is the savior of the whole world because Adam is the one by which sin came into the world and sin has infected everyone. But one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that almost sounds like an argument for inherited sin, but if you don't pay attention to what's spreading, you could almost make that argument. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So it it isn't Adam's sin that Paul says is spreading from person to person in subsequent generations. And even getting to the point of of the idea that I mentioned that I I know some denominations believe that you inherit all the sins of your ancestors and not just the sins of Adam. In fact, that one of the the big reasons uh, for uh, one of the big arguments they make for Jesus being born sinless, whereas no one was born sinless, is that sin was literally spread through the genetic material of the father in the sperm. That that's how that's how strange this gets. But he doesn't say sin spread to everyone. He says death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, one of the things that he's going to tell us at the end of this chapter, skipping ahead just a moment here, it says the law came in verse 20 so that the transgression would increase. So the law made us, made us realize how big our burden of sin really is. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So whatever he is saying here that sin is, and whatever sin is doing, grace has to be bigger and do more, right? Okay. So let's carry this. Let me give you a second to talk on that before I jump into the next set of verses, because we're going. 
Yeah. Oh, I know exactly. I know exactly where we're going because what we're trying to do is mm-hmm. we're trying to liken what right. happened that, with Adam to what's right. going to happen with Christ. Jesus and right. Adam. The, well, they're, they're types, types and anti-types. That one is a reversal uh, of the Adam. Other. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I should. That might be a better point. Yeah, yeah. That they are type and anti-type to one another. And the idea is that let's mm-hmm. call it the followers of Adam. Those who, like Adam, choose right. to follow Adam's path, mm-hmm. which is sin, receive death. And it's trying to say that the yeah. contrast to that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ contrasts because, as with Adam, those who follow Adam uh, receive the penalty. He says the free gift, therefore, not like the offense, the free gift is received right. by those who follow the Christ. The the second Adam, he's called elsewhere but the, the, the man of God. So he says if by, and as you said, very, very well stated, that grace must be greater than the offense of sin. So not less than, but greater than, so that that much, it must be understood that its imputation yeah. is even more pronounced. than the, And, and the, that the really expresses what he said in verse 12. One man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, not because all inherited the sin of Adam, but because all sinned. Death is allowed to exist in the world because all men sin. Now, that sort of, you could argue that maybe that rolls back into the sin nature argument, but again, if we have a sin nature, then we have a Jesus problem over in Hebrews 2. If if if, if flesh is absolutely 100% of the right. time constrained to sin, and man has no choice or culpability in his sin, then we have immediately a Jesus problem if we're going to say, well, that all men die because all men are going to sin or because all are born in sin and you know, baby sin and all of that, then we immediately have a problem with this verse because it doesn't say sin is spreading. It says death is spreading. Yeah. Death and is course, spreading because man keeps on sinning. And one big idea is going to be mm-hmm. Jesus is the problem with all of this doctrine. Jesus is the problem with the, with, uh, the sinful nature because he cannot be our savior if he had a sinful nature and he cannot be our savior if he's not with our nature. And original sin is is the problem too. Jesus cannot be our savior if he has original sin, and he cannot be one of us if he does not, if original sin is necessary to the human experience. Now, by the way, the Catholic Church tries to solve this by saying, well, Jesus, uh, Mary was immaculately conceived. You've right. probably heard of the doctrine of immaculate conception. It doesn't pertain to Jesus. It pertains to Mary. And it says Mary was immaculately conceived without sin, trying to solve that. Obviously, it's not a biblical doctrine. Um, but it's an attempt to address the problem that original sin creates, that original sin creates the idea that Jesus should have also, being a descendant of Adam, and does not the Bible tell us explicitly, for example, in the book of Luke, that Jesus mm-hmm. was a physical descendant of Adam, that Jesus as a descendant of Adam uh, is an inheritor of of those things. He would be an inheritor of original sin. Yeah, I mean, if Jesus, if, I'm sorry, rigid. if Mary was immaculately conceived, then that immediately presents a problem with the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, that that Mary has no tie yes. back to Adam, yes. and therefore Jesus can have no tie back to David through either his father or his mother at that point. So again, but Paul is not done with right. this point. Let me jump back into Romans here and read the next few verses and talk about that. Let me get this back up on screen here. Because we're actually going to look at some verses here that do, for a moment, seem to indicate that there is an inherited sin. But I think it quickly adjusts when you have when you stop and think about his last point that that whatever grace is doing, it has to be bigger than what sin did. So starting in verse fifteen, it says, "The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned." For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So this is this seems to be saying Jesus didn't just come to answer Adam's sin. He came to answer everybody's sin. And that that you know many people became transgressors because sin entered the world in verses six in verse sixteen. For if by the transgression, and here's the part that we have to be careful with, we got to really pay attention to what we've read. For if by the transgression of one death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. That's exactly what you were talking about earlier. 
So then as through one transgression, there resulted in the condemnation to all men. And this is, this is the, the pivot verse we have to be careful with. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in the justification of life to all men. Now he's going to double down on this in verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Here's why this is a problem. I'm going to leave this up on the screen for just a second and then it gets you to jump in. Here's why this is a problem for the doctrine of original sin. Every, every discussion I've ever had on original sin, they want the, the proponent of it wants to camp out in verses 18, 19, and 12. Uh, 12 and 13. And skip everything else that's there. When you look at what's being said in 18, you have to remember what he's going to say in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So whatever you're going to say based on these verses that sin has done, grace has to outdo. End of story. Otherwise, the whole plan of salvation falls apart. Look at what he says. So then as through one transgression there resulted in the condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted the justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. I cannot argue that all men, that many in verses 18 and 19, or all men and many in verses 18 and 19 literally means every person is a sinner because they inherit Adam's sin, if I do not also mean that all men and many in verses 18 and 19 means that by the mere fact of Jesus being on the cross, that all men, every single person alive who ever will live, is completely 100% justified without sin. Nobody is going to hell because he just says at the end of this chapter, sin has to, or grace has to do more than sin. Grace has to accomplish more than sin. I cannot say that the many here means only a few have the availability of grace and it's only going to save a few. If I'm saying that all men become sinners because they inherit Adam's sin, then all men have to be made righteous by that same argument because Jesus died. And that's problematic. That's a big problem. That's, ex that's exactly right. This is, and this is huge. What what you're talking about is huge. I'm going to say it again just so uh, uh, we hammer it down well. Uh, if everybody is a sinner because of Adam's sin, then Paul would necessarily be saying that every yeah. person is saved because of Jesus's righteousness. Yet the scriptures repeatedly say not all men will be saved. Uh, we're told that again and again and again. So the truth of the matter is everybody who is a disciple of Adam uh, by choosing to sin mm -hmm. will is accounted as sinful. Everybody who is a disciple of Jesus, who is a follower of Jesus and follows his path, follows him on the cross, uh, as he'll say in Romans chapter 6, then that person mm -hmm. is accounted to him Jesus' righteousness. And and fundamentally, yeah. you cannot separate those two ideas. Because it uses the same nothing. wording. Uh, all uh, men and all men in verse 18. Many exactly. and many in verse 19. I cannot say the all men of verse 18 when it applies to Jesus is smaller than the all men of verse 19 when it or in verse 18 when it applies to Adam or the many and so forth if you're talking of, if you're saying that all men is numerically speaking of every single person inherits the sin of Adam. Now, if you were talking about potential and you're saying that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3 and 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that each is culpable to his own sin, and that just as the potential to sin and the opportunity to sin spread to all men and death spread to all men, then the potential and opportunity for life spread to all men because of Jesus, all of a sudden the passage begins to agree with itself again. But until that point... Any doctrine of inherited sin out of this passage is com is setting it at odds with the terms that it uses and the conclusion that it draws. And as you mentioned, and 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 I talked about last week and earlier in this program, that you have to take Romans one through eleven as one 
cogent, coherent thought that Paul is answering the question, is the sacrifice of Jesus really all I need? Does it apply to Jews and Gentiles alike? Does it address sin? Does it address death? How does it do these things? Why is it necessary? Why is faith necessary? Why is grace necessary? He's basically building the case for man could not solve this equation on his own. He's not answering the question necessarily of where did sin come from. He did that back in chapter 1. Now he's answering the question of, here's why man needed it. Man couldn't solve this on his own. And we would have seen that if we'd started a little earlier in chapter 5. We could do a whole program on Romans 5 and still have plenty left to talk about. But one of the passages you wanted to talk about that really, in my mind, is probably the clearest one on original sin is Ezekiel 18. Why don't you start talking about that? I'll get it up on the screen for us here. Yeah. Yeah, so Ezekiel at chapter 18, uh, setting the context of the conversation there, Ezekiel is a prophet to Israel at a time when God was preparing to destroy the kingdom of Judah. And a lot of people felt like that wasn't fair. They said that uh, God was punishing the people of uh, Judah in their time for the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers. In other words, they were saying they were inheriting sin and and the wages of sin that God was bringing upon them from their ancestors. Now, why Ezekiel 18 is so important, it is a nature of God passage. And it is God saying, Ezekiel, I want you to tell the people that they have a proverb. He says, the proverb is the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the the parents did something and now the children are being punished for it. And God is angry. He's angry because he wants it understood that that is accusing Mm -hmm. him of being unjust. He says, you're not to say this anymore. He says, because every soul is mine, souls of father, souls of son, and it is the soul who sins that will die. Now, God will spend the rest of the chapter elaborating on this simple idea uh, that that we each individually receive Mm -hmm. the wages of our own sins. And he'll say it in every combination possible that he can. If if a man's righteous and his son's unrighteous, his son is punished, the father's not. If a father's unrighteous and a son is righteous, the son is not punished, the father is. He'll go through all these different uh, explanations of it to say one simple idea, original sin cannot be true. It is an offense to God to say it is. It accuses God of being unjust. Uh, uh, It accuses God of not uh, being fair. Uh, It is something that God was offended And really, they were taking and corrupting what he said about himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments when he said, if you, after the first two, you know, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make into thee any graven images. He says, he says that if you're faithful to these things, I will be faithful to tens of thousands. And if you're not, I'm going to punish to the second and third generation. And they were taking that idea of, well, God's just punishing us for something our fathers did that, that he's taking that, they're taking that, and they're applying that in a way that God never intended them to apply it, because they weren't looking inwardly. They really weren't there because of the sins of their fathers. They were there because God had become so fed up, not only with their father's sins, but their own sins, that he had taken them into captivity. And they're saying, well, yeah, it's just because of of what happened before. This really isn't our fault. And, And God's like, they're not allowed to say that anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear the I don't want to hear the the moaning and the wailing because what that was stopping them from doing was actually coming to a point of repentance. If my sin can be someone else's fault, then by necessity I am not guilty. And you're never going to produce that kind of that kind of contrition that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, that godly sorrow that produces repentance, as long as you can sit around and say, I am what I am because of my nature, or I am what I am because you know Adam sinned and this is why I'm in this is why I'm in the position that I'm in. As long as you don't see your culpability in your sin, you're never going to turn to repentance. And that's really the issue with this is again, this is the third time we've said this on this program, this really undermines God's plan of salvation. And it sort of takes us into the next one, doesn't it? That now we're talking about about one that's almost exclusively Calvinistic. And and Calvinism has a lot of different flavors that are running around. It it sort of finds its ways even into denominations sometimes that that would say that they're not Calvinistic or that they don't support Calvinism. That uh, but many take this idea of 
absolute total depravity unless God acts upon you as being some something that is biblical and that's that's something that's really frustrating because number 1 again it causes problems for our relationship with Jesus if you're totally depraved except for Jesus he wasn't totally depraved then he is not like us he's not like us if i'm totally depraved and i cannot choose god unless god first acts upon me then everything he says in second peter 3 about not being willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance on the invitation at the end of revelation 22 whosoever will may come that the the promise that he makes in ephesians uh, chapter 2 about us being transferred from the domain or, or or transferred from death into life almost that was colossians there for a second but transferred from death into life and that that we're saved by grace through faith there that if if grace and faith are and are not coming by the word of god they're coming because god has exclusively chosen me and i'm otherwise totally depraved then all of this becomes sort of a weird puppet show i mean i'm just going to call it like it is it's all a lie in a puppet show if god has individually selected people before the foundation of the world and chosen them arbitrarily not because of who they are not because he knew they would seek them but he's chosen them and he has made the choice, I'm going to save this person, but not this person, and there's nothing that you can do to move between these two columns. There's no seeking him, there's no contrition, then it all becomes a weird sort of staged puppet show at that point. And and we'll, and they'll argue for it based on God's and like sovereignty. Said, and we're going to do a whole episode on sovereignty in a few weeks, but that's a big one. But let me get you, let me get you to talk about this a little bit. I can tell. Yeah, this is I, one that's got I'm you fired up. up. Uh, <laughs> cutting you off, yeah. Yeah. It does because it says God's a liar. Because God said, I don't desire that anyone should perish. Liar. Uh, you must because some we are so depraved we can't choose what's right. You compel us to choose. Now, now by the way, what's fascinating about uh, uh, Calvinism is that Calvinism is a very logical conclusion mm-hmm. that begins with a sinful nature and original sin. And it and it draws some logical conclusions. It says that hey, if if it's our nature to sin, then we can't help it. And ergo, we have no free will. That's the Calvinistic concept here. There's no choice to be made. And God is a liar mm-hmm. because He said He wanted everybody saved, but He doesn't. He said we have the ability to choose what we're going to do, but we really don't. Uh, God has lied to us again and again and again, according to Calvinism. Um, and of course, as I say, as you pointed out, it you know it 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 means that Jesus can't really be our savior because he really isn't mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, the perfect mediator between God and man. He's not man. He can't be to be totally depraved. And all the times where we're told where people made choices uh, about whom they would serve and what they would do, uh, we're being we're being deceived. Um, and and it's an and it's an utterly deplorable idea. And yet, it's a absolutely logical conclusion that one makes when we begin by saying Mm -hmm. we have no control over sin um and and that idea talking to someone just recently who was telling me sharing with me the idea that uh that until they could say i have control over sin they didn't stop sinning and that's true until somebody says i can take control of this uh and i can Mm -hmm. overcome it they will not overcome it uh that's a simple truth of who we are as people and to say that I have no control over sin is to say, therefore, my sins, not my culpability. Well, and there's actually and entire YouTube jan- channels, and I'll, I'll link to one of them. Not, I don't agree with everything they teach, but that I'll link to one of them that debunks Calvinism. And because it is such a strange doctrine when you get right down to it. The interesting thing about it is uh, Calvinists will tell you that theirs is you know the original doctrine of the church, but it's named after a guy who's really doesn't go that far back in history. I mean, I mean, <laughs> John Calvin was wasn't right. that long ago when it comes right down to it. Do you remember when he was? Well, 1500s. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, it was, you're, uh, you're, you're that that's what what uh what memory serves uh, for me as well. And so, um, you know, there's lots of guys that the the I think Spurgeon was one of them that echoed it more recently and probably argued for it more dogmatically. But you're talking about yeah. something that came around 1500 years after the time of Christ is is really the the emergence that we see of this doctrine, and it's all based on and we can do a whole show on this one too on the idea that predestination means that God has chosen something, and again, you don't find this term total depravity. You don't find 
the idea of the perseverance of the saints. You don't find the the uh, the idea of limited atonement. I can't remember them all. <laughs> Irresistible grace. I always forget what the U is. <laughs> but the unconditional election. You, you, you don't find those things in Scripture. That they are, in many ways, taking a verse and setting it out away from everything else and saying, okay, I'm going to base an entire doctrine on this idea. That... And again, it comes down to this this notion of I don't have culpability for my sin. But Calvinism is a little stranger because Calvinism ultimately the most of the Calvinists that I've met in my life, I've, I've met very few that have ever told me that they weren't sure if they were saved and they couldn't be sure if they were saved. But most of them were absolutely certain that they were saved because they had accepted the hard truth of Calvinism, and that was their indication that that God had clearly chosen them. And if you so, it kind of becomes sort of the circular logic that if you can't accept it, then you're not in. But if you have accepted it, then you are in. Kind of thing. That it becomes a weird sort of circular logic. And ultimately, what you see at the end of it is, uh, yeah, you you just made God a liar. That when it when it commends Noah for his righteousness, like we went over and looked at in Genesis three, that wasn't Noah's righteousness. That was God's righteousness. Noah didn't have any choice in it. When Abraham is commended in Genesis 22 for his faith when when the angel of the Lord says, now I know, meaning now I've observed the faith of Abraham. That wasn't Abraham's faith. That was God's faith, that, that Moses wasn't the meekest man who ever, walked, who ever walked the face of the earth. He didn't walk with God as a friend because God, w- God was controlling Moses at that point. And that sort of begs the question, if God was had ordained exactly what Moses was going to do from the beginning— then how exactly did Moses stumble in striking the rock? It, it just becomes all of these issues. You know, why is Judas guilty of betraying Jesus if God ordained that from the beginning, made it happen? He had no free will or choice in the matter. It all It's all just sort of a weird puppet show. And again, it's about shifting the culpability of sin. Yeah, but- You know, another issue that comes up with total depravity, um, you know, you've mentioned the righteousness mm-hmm. of godly people making godly choices. One of the biggest problems with, with uh, total depravity yeah. is when unrighteous people made godly choices. Um, when Ahab, for example, uh, humbles himself before God and God mm-hmm. makes the point to say, look, Ahab humbled himself um, whenever, you know, whether it's Nineveh repenting or Manasseh repenting. Um, one of the ideas is that when the Bible points to somebody and says that person's evil, that person's sinful, and then they make a choice, you know, maybe it's not like like Ahab, you know, he doesn't sure. make you know a lifelong choice, but in that moment he chose to do the right thing. The point is, is that when wicked people make a good choice, uh, either the Calvinist has to say that the Holy Spirit can dwell in an evil person, which is contrary to a lot of the things the New Testament tells us. Or they're going to have to acknowledge that an evil mm-hmm. person can make a righteous decision. Um, there's a there's a, again we've said Calvinism or total depravity makes God a liar. It also makes the Holy Spirit able to dwell within wickedness, which we're also uh, given the sense First Corinthians chapter six, mm-hmm. for example, that that's well, simply not possible. I mean, even something as 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 simple because it just involves one individual as Paul's conversion, you know, based on his experience on the road to Damascus, why was that experience necessary to convert him? If you're going to say this is all about God's sovereignty and God is pre-chosen and predetermined exactly how this was going to happen, what is the point of all of this? What is the point of telling us in John 3.16 that, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That That's fundamentally not true. Well, the Calvinists would argue, well, only only those who accept God's sovereignty can really believe in him. Well, that's not what it said. That's not what it said. And over and over and over, the, and on and on and on this goes, so to speak. That I mean, there's no point in the fruit of the Spirit. There's no point in, in any of the book of James, which I know Calvinists usually have a large problem with the book of James. <clears throat> but the the doctrines that really hold to this aren't really substantiated so much by scriptural context as they are individual verses. And that that's where, right. it, it, but it's an incessant sort of doctrine. It, it really just, just 
is the strongest of the, and probably the most adamant of the three that we've talked about today. That somebody that really, really believes in absolute total depravity of the flesh has to believe that God created the flesh sinful. It is an absolute break in the passage of Hebrews where it says that Jesus, you know, or and, and Romans eight that says Jesus shared in our likeness. He he shared in the likeness of men. He had to be like his brothers because he wasn't born totally depraved. And if so, why? If that's not the case, then why is God hanging him on a cross to die for the sins of the world? The you know, there's an important point here uh, to consider, um, something we haven't answered that, that needs to be answered. Uh, when, when Augustine was looking at, you know, his coming up with his idea that roots, um, you know, that roots all right. these things and brings them all back uh, to us today, mm-hmm. he noticed the idea that children die. And again, this is one of the big misunderstandings that we want to correct for just a moment. Uh, if, if we're not inheriting sin, if we're not, uh, you know, born with a sinful nature, and if we're not, you know, totally depraved, then why is it that even before we have the ability to make a mm-hmm. choice between right and wrong, we might die? Uh, why is it that babies die? If death is the thing that God brought, uh, if Adam introduces death, and if Adam, you know, if we all all in Adam die, why is it then that even those that we would say are innocent die? And that's maybe a question okay. we can take just a second here to answer. Uh, if we understand this better, we, we oftentimes talk about the idea of the wages mm-hmm. of sin and the consequences of sin, first of all. Um, and going back to our passage in Genesis 2 and 3, God said, the day you eat of it, you die. We would understand that as the wage of sin. Romans 6 and verse 23 mm-hmm. speaks about the wages of sin or death. That every person who sins will die, uh, is dead before God. And uh, the commandment mm-hmm. brings death, Paul would say in the book of Romans. But the consequence right. of Adam's sin was that he was put out of the garden. He couldn't abide in the presence of God anymore. And physically he died. He and all of his descendants were born in a physically damaged world as a consequence of sin. Uh, the mm-hmm. wages of sin are specific. You don't escape them. Yeah. But the consequences of sin are all over the place. Uh, they are random. They are uh, uncertain. Sometimes we can predict what they might be, but yeah. other times we can't. And everybody suffers them. Jesus died on the cross, not because he was sinful. Uh, his physical death on the cross was not because there was some strange imputation of sin where he suddenly became sinful before God, because mm-hmm. the scriptures repeatedly say he was sinless, um, any more than a, than a baby that dies is dies because of sin. They die because of the consequences yeah. of sin, not because of the wages of sin. And that's an important idea I think many people fail to understand, that when the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of death in two ways. That physical death, which is a consequence of sin, and the wage and the mm-hmm. spiritual death, which is the wage of sin. And I think for many people, not discerning those things has led them to say that, well, if, if everybody's physically going to die, then everybody must have imputed to them sin. But of course, the Bible tells us repeatedly children don't have sin. Uh, they don't have a knowledge of right or wrong. In the book of Deuteronomy, God spoke about why he let the children uh, of the children of Israel enter the land because he said they did, they, mm-hmm. they were too young they didn't have a knowledge of right or wrong. Well, Paul uh, addresses that. In know, the Bible 7. speaks about uh, Jesus even before. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but even Jesus would, as a child, not have uh, you know not have the ability to choose between right or wrong. Uh, so we understand why children are. Uh, Jesus would say later that mm-hmm. you know children were the ones that the kingdom was for. Yeah. Because and, of that and when you get down to it, and you really get into this. You almost have to discredit everything God says about himself, about the relationship he wants to have with us, the availability of that relationship, that everything about the plan of salvation, here we are saying this again, that doctrine fundamentally changes everything about the plan of salvation, that Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't die so that so that the many could be made righteous. Jesus, and, and this whole idea of predestination and the elect and all of those things that, that really feed into it, and I've I've pointed this out before on on episodes of Biblically Speaking. You don't just read a little further. Anytime you're running into a doctrine of predestination or election or something like that, read a little further. Find out what he means. Look at the context of what's going on there, as opposed to getting caught up in one verse that you don't understand and and believing something that's wholly untrue about God. Because uh, you know, honestly, this doctrine 
even more so than the other two, has done more to defame the name of Christ than probably any that I know of. Because when when people suffer in this world, a lot of times people that believe in total depravity will say, you know, that was just one depraved person, uh, uh, the consequences of living in a totally depraved world, and they were just as depraved as the person that committed the sin against them. That's an ugly way of thinking. That's an unbiblical way of thinking. That Jesus actually condemned that way of thinking uh, in whether you want to you want to talk about Luke where his disciples were wanted to call down fire on the city kind of thing or or the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and in, in the way that they justified their evil that they were doing towards widows and things of that nature devouring their houses on a pretext Jesus condemned that way of thinking he condemned a thinking that did not presuppose that God acts toward people out of love and a desire to heal, and a desire to bring them to him. He was walking around teaching a message of repent to everyone. And if everyone can't repent, even if they desired to repent, and, and I know many of the modern Calvinists would, would say that it's, well, it's impossible to desire to repent because you can't, you can't desire that because that would mean that you're not totally depraved. Well, I, I would question that. I, I know people who have lingered long at the point of repentance because something was hard for them, but they struggled with it mightily in their soul, and they struggled mightily in their, in their emotions over the decision to come to Christ. And that's, according to the, according to the, to the total depravity, an impossibility. And that leaves us in the position of so much of what God says being wrong. Ezekiel 18 can't be true. What he said about Noah can't be true. What he said about Moses can't be true. What he said about Adam isn't true because Adam just made the choice God intended him to make all along. And you end up in a position, and and if you're somebody that holds to Calvinism and you want to challenge us on this, feel free to leave the comments. We might even have you on the program, and and if you want to try to come on and defend it, we'll be happy to talk with you about it. But this is, at the end of the day, this is a doctrine that essentially dismisses so much of the Bible that it is scary, that it gets called, that is believed by some to be the essence of Christianity. All right, well, there's a lot more that we could say, but not a lot of time left to say it because we're already an hour and 10 minutes. And it's going to have to be edited down some, but what closing thoughts do you have? Uh, I, we covered this so well. Um, I think anybody who's reasonable can see this is not a biblical yeah. doctrine, but it's a prevalent one. We've said in the beginning, it's worth saying again, probably every denomination uh, has some aspect of this idea within their thinking. And um, hopefully uh, hopefully the listeners here are, are understanding why yeah. this is such a dangerous doctrine. Uh, why and and why it, why it came up? What it was trying to answer? Some big questions it was trying to mm-hmm. answer, but why it's such a deadly? Yeah, I, I I don't think it matters which flavor of it you're talking about. Whether you're you're talking about the idea of of the sinful right. flesh and that my, that I am de- destined by God to because of the nature of my flesh. That whether you're arguing about inheriting sin or you're arguing about of uh, you know for total absolute depravity and that man cannot do anything unless God imposes his will upon him and and he's choosing that at random all of those disagree with something about Jesus and fundamentally alter the plan of salvation to something that cannot be substantiated in the Bible and if you don't see that as wrong and you've got questions then feel free I mean we're happy to discuss we're not here to attack anybody but if you've got questions, then leave them in the comments, and we'll try to get them answered for you. But until we talk again, we were glad to have you today. And for all of us here at Biblically Speaking, for Brian and myself and for the guests that come on from time to time, we want to say have a good day and God bless. <laughs>